you're listening to Christina Engler, and my daddy is the host. All right, uh, best intro ever. Um, I am. My name is Rick Crawford. I am the host, uh, also known as Dada around these parts. But um, I'm the host of the Sustainable Angler. Uh, for those of you who may be listening for the first time, uh, this is a podcast created to inspire anglers to protect the planet. And I am really stoked about our guest today, who is Dr. Andy Danilchuk. Uh, For those not familiar, Andy is the professor of fish conservation at UMass Amherst. He's a fellow for the Explorers Club. He's a research fellow for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. He's a science advisor for Keep Fish Wet and an ambassador for brands like Patagonia. So it goes without saying, uh, Andy is very well qualified to talk about fisheries conservation on the show today. And we take a deep dive into uh, some of Andy's background, but also um, how climate change is impacting our fisheries, how anglers can take action and be more resilient or, or help our fisheries become more resilient. Um, and also the amazing work he does with Bonefish Tarpon Trust and some of the findings um, from their research and their studies. Um, I've got tarpon on the brain, have a couple of tarpon trips lined up this year. So um, anyway, really excited for y'all to hear this interview. Um, had a lot of fun. Um, also, uh, wanted to let you know that if you live in Charleston, I'm really psyched that the Sustainable Angler is now available on Ohm Radio, 96.3 FM, airing every Saturday at 2 p.m. Um, so Charleston's only community-supported radio station, psyched to be a part of it. So tune in Saturdays at 2 p.m. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies. Emerger Strategies is a sustainable business consultancy that helps companies measure and demonstrably improve their sustainability performance year over year, all while boosting profits. To learn more, visit www.emergerstrategies.com. Hey, Eric. Thanks very much. Yeah. And uh, delighted to be on the podcast. Um, yeah. And, and it's and it's been great interacting with you for the last few years. And, you know, obviously there's some common ground in thinking about sustainability in our recreational fisheries and everything in between. Um, and so uh, for people that don't know me, um, I'm Dr. Andy Danilchuk, I'm a professor of fish conservation at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, And that's kind of my day job uh, where, you know, as a professor, I teach a bunch of courses in fish conservation, fish ecology, recreational fisheries and and other things, and then do a whole bunch of research um, on lots of different um, things that are fish related. Uh, My background, uh, I grew up in Canada, uh, and, uh, did a lot of research on fish populations, uh, uh, in Canada and, um, focusing on things that influence their populations in terms of natural and anthropogenic disturbances, um, focused a lot on, um, things like impacts of forest harvesting on fish populations, looked at the impacts of pulp and paper mills on fish populations, um, you know, have a, have a pretty deep background in 
in all things kind of fish and aquatic. Um, and uh, after uh, finishing my PhD at the University of Alberta, I spent about 10 years in the Bahamian archipelago, uh, first two years in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and then uh, the remainder of that time on Eleuthera in the Bahamas, uh, where I had the opportunity to help build a research institute um, that focuses on sustainability and uh, both on the land and in the sea, this collective idea of um, living harmoniously with our environments. And uh, and so um, and then made my way up to UMass in 2009. Um, and since um, and, and so the, the last um, really since that move to the Turks and Caicos Islands uh, in 2000, uh, my research focus has shifted a lot towards recreational fisheries. Um, so I do a lot on understanding how fish respond to uh, catch and release. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that today. Uh, I do a lot of work on movement ecology. Um, so how fish and I do some work on sharks, you know, what drives their movement patterns and how do you connect their movement patterns to habitat use and also what puts them in areas where they might be more threatened um, by various, you know, environmental disturbances. Um, and so um, that's sort of where my research has uh, gone for the last like 23 years. Um, and I think as an academic, I understand sort of the, the, the research side of things. I also grew up fishing. I'm a passionate angler. Uh, I love to fish. And, you know, I know a lot of times people will say this, that fishing has saved their lives. And, and it, you know, I, I have a pretty crazy, nasty, weird past, um, childhood and everything else. Um, and fishing real actually did save my life and, and to be able to focus on fish, um, and as something that I love and to have my research sort of, um, work on fish conservation and protecting what I love and protecting, helping protect what everybody else loves that likes to go fishing or, or even eat fish. Um, you know, that's sort of where my career path has gone. Um, and let's see, tied to all that. I know I'm rambling, but you asked <laughs> no, for a detailed done. background, but you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's weird. Cause I'm not, you know, for, for right or wrong, good or bad. I'm not a typical, I don't think I'm a typical academic. I look at a lot of what a, a lot of my other colleagues do at UMass and, you know, they focus on their teaching and their research and then they write their scientific publications and they, that's what they do. And, um, I don't think that's good enough. Um, you know, I think that we need to get the science, uh, we have to be really good at conservation engagement. We have to really be able yeah. to good, be good at, um, taking, taking the complex science and all this other stuff that is, is really important, but putting it in a, and communicating in a way where, um, people that um, want to have a voice, have a powerful voice, and they understand what's going on with fish in their environment. So because of that, you know, and because of, I think that um, frame of mind, or at least my my drive in that sense, um, in addition to being a professor, so like I'm a, I'm a fly fishing ambassador for Patagonia, uh, because of like the shared values, obviously that, that kind of jives um based on uh the the stuff that i do with catch and release i'm the science advisor for keep fish wet thinking about how i sort of um use the science to help support that grassroots conservation movement for um understanding how anglers can release fish in the best condition possible 
Um, I'm also, you know, for various reasons, I'm on the science and policy committee for the fisheries fund, which is a part of the American fly fishing trade association. Um, I'm, uh, on the science panel for the international game fish association. So <laughs> I, I understand, you know, the, the, the non-government organization world and, and why NGOs are important as components in terms of the, um, the way we work collaboratively um, to for the future of our fish and aquatic ecosystems. Um, because of the stuff that I've done uh, internationally and a lot of the exploration work, um, I'm a uh, I'm a fellow national of the Explorers Club, um, and so understanding how you know where some of the places we go that are pristine or um, the understanding how there's that connection of, of integral and visceral exploration in terms of some of the, the, the places that we go and the things that we try, where we tried to advocate for change. And then, and I, I know this will come up later in our conversation, um, then relative to, you know, tarpon and bonefish and permit and other things, um, for about, I think it's like almost 10 years, nine years, maybe, um, I've been a, uh, a research fellow of bonefish and tarpon trust. Um, so that's kind of me in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> well, well, um, in, in summary, you now understand why I'm excited to interview, uh, uh, Dr. Daniel Chuck here. Just because, Andy, just call me Andy. I ask my students call me Andy. The yeah. doctor thing is too much of like an ivory tower stuff. And I'm not that type of academic. At least I hope I'm not. Um, so. Well, regardless you now know why I wanted to interview Andy because uh, there could be someone, I don't think we could talk to too many people or I couldn't talk to or interview too many people um, that have his particular insights and knowledge. So uh, that's why I'm really excited about this. Um, so there were a, a few things um, that you mentioned in the intro um, that kind of got me thinking and I, and I've, I've been asking people this um, in, in my interviews recently, and it's always a, a fun one, I think. But so you obviously, I, I assume you grew up fishing. That's kind of where you fell Absolutely. in love with it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so who inspired you or who were like your conservation heroes that that you went from being an angler who, you know, loved to fish to all right, and now I'm uh, pursuing, you know, uh, a career and protecting these fish. Yeah, I, I I grew up watching, you know, Jacques Cousteau, and yeah. I I grew up watching, you know, those shows about, and maybe that's where I like my my interest in exploring and 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 really thinking about um, the the natural history, like our connection with the fish and the environment, and and um, thinking about you know the way they behave and these cool observations of the world, you know, and hope at a time when you know maybe it wasn't being messed up so much. Um, and so you know, I, I remember spending a lot of time thinking about, and I would say you know that that would be a, a pivotal part in my my life where uh, I found that inspiring. Um, and um, you know, and, and that was happening at a time where, you know, I found sort of solace in going fishing and being out in nature. 
um, cause I didn't want to be at home and I, I'm not a city person. I grew up in the suburbs. Um, so somewhere between the city and the country and, you know, there's social and, and cultural things about living in the suburbs that, uh, aren't good sometimes for young adolescents that, you know, get in trouble and yeah, anyway, um, <laughs> it, you know, so, you know, that, I think that planted a seed. So when I was also, uh, relatively young, so I'm the, I'm the youngest of four, um, and some might say maybe I'm a mistake or whatever. My siblings are are much older um, than I am, and um, by the time I came along, my my parents were like blue collar family, like you know, saving money, um, you know, struggling with some stuff. Um, they um, they decided it was when I was five. They um, wanted to do something, uh, adventurous. And, and we went to Andros Island. Um, and that was back in, in 1973 when the Bahamas gained independence, you know, I, I was just this little squirt. Right. And, um, we you know, flew into Nassau and then I remember flying into Andros on a twin otter and, you know, half the Island was on fire. Cause there was like dry season. We still landed and hopped in this VW van and we we're like driving to, um, the the resort a little lodge uh small hope bay lodge and we we're like going through and the, the driver jumped out with a piece of plywood to like smack off the fire to get the van going through um and i got there you know i'm just like grew up in canada as a little any you know little kid and uh that alone was pretty uh amazing experience and then you know, my, my dad put a mask on my face and kind of shoved me in the water. I was like, holy crap, look at this really cool environment, the diversity, there was sharks and, you know, I'm pretty sure I saw tailing bonefish and like, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. Um, and, and that kind of, um, you know, that, I think that planted also that seed of my early connection to like a tropical marine environment and to diverse parts of the environment. And, and, you know, going back to Southern Ontario, you know, we explored and we ended up going to, uh, in my, my formative years as a, as a, you know, a teenager, I, I, um, I, I had this best friend and that he's still my best friend. He's like my, my brother from another mother, uh, his name's Dave. And I think everybody has a good friend, Dave, but, um, <laughs> my good friend, Dave is like the, he's the uncle to my kids, basically. Um, you know, his, uh, family was kind of like, like a surrogate family, a very important one. Um, and they had, a, a cottage, um, up, uh, North of Lake Ontario and we went fishing a lot and it was at a time too. So during this transition, it's as I was getting more involved and, and more connected to fish in the environment, I was also becoming more aware around the great lakes about what a cesspool it was back then. Like, you know, like all these, um, super fun sites and, you know, when you're go fishing in, in Ontario, even back then, and I think it's like that now, you get this like this big guidebook that shows you like where it's safe to harvest fish and what size of fish is hard to harvest because of like PCBs and, you know, all these other toxic stuff that's in the environment. Um, and so, you know, it was at this intersection when I was like trying to find my path out of high school, which I barely got out of because just of, yeah, long story, but, um, <laughs> Barely made it out of high school, you know, got into university and uh, got onto a path where I could focus really um, intensely on fish. Um, and one, because of like, I love them so much and they were such an important part of my life and they are still such an important part of my life. 
And two, I saw a path where, boy, if, if they're so important, how can we keep like screwing up their environment and screwing them up? And, and maybe there's a part of this path for me to be on where I could use my energy and my passion to like positively affect change through science and, and all that other stuff. And going back to your question about like a, a mentor or a catalyst. So, right. There was Akusto. There's like my buddy, Dave, who we got connected in, into this, this visceral connection to fish. And then I, I, um, I had a mentor during my undergraduate, his name was, uh, Michael Barrel, And, uh, he, um, he was one that kind of encouraged me to go to, to this particular university. And, um, you know, he was, he was pretty good about the philosophically thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. Like, is this a day job? Like, what are you thinking about this for a career path? You know, what's this broader purpose? Um, you know, and do you have a broader purpose and how do you want to affect change? And, um, at that time he was, he was writing a book, um, and the, I, I won't swear on the podcast, but his working title uh, for it initially was Famous Fishery F-Ups. Um, and it was this it was book that basically went through and, and it was um, the prologue is written by David Suzuki, who is a famous Canadian conservationist, um, environmentalist. Um, and it basically went through and, and it was a catalog of all these different um, ways that for as much as we love fish and from a commercial standpoint and a recreational standpoint, and all these other things they like, there are these famous fishery F ups that like, here's how we overlooked these important aspects about fish and the environment. And here's why the cod stocks collapse. And here's why tuna stocks are collapsing. And here's why salmon stocks are collapsing. And so that, you know, having that time to sit with that mentor um, and to 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 philosophize with him, to think about my place um, on this planet, you know, if I'm going to like use my energy to positively affect change, you know, like to go down that path, I think that was kind of like the foundation for the steps that I continue to take. And it's never a straight line, right? Like you think you have these career goals and, yeah. you know, we won't, you don't have a long enough podcast for me to go into all that stuff. But anyway, um, that like, and so, you know, there, there were these people, I think that, and these experiences, you know, like I, I think we sometimes think as, as mentors, as individuals, sometimes I think mentors at, or pivotal moments of these experiences and these things that you kind of grab onto that make you realize that what you're doing has a uh, purpose um, you know, and, and I, I see that even more now that I have two, you know, young kids, not that young, you know, 12 and 15, but you know, that, that purpose and thinking about their future and their future on this planet and, and, and for good or bad, they like to fish obviously, and they like to be outside and they like to explore. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that as, as a, as a, as a person on this planet, as an as academic as as somebody that has connections to you know the fishing industry and um other platforms to help to you know spread not even not just my voice but like hopefully my philosophy that maybe we'll create more of this catalyst for change so that you know we have fish and healthy aquatic ecosystems and a healthy planet to live on uh in the future yeah um well i i love that and and i think it's um my myself included, I would at least, you know, totally different 
way of going about doing it, but kind of the same fuel for the the and passion um, is that you know you. I think at the end of the day, people protect what they love, and when you um, when you find something, and and for me, uh, it, it was fishing, and it was for you too. That I just totally latched onto that. Um, I was like, man, I, I gotta, I can't just take from the resource. I need to be able to do something to give back to it. And, um, so it's, it's always inspiring to, to talk to people who have not only, uh, sort of had that passion, but then found a way to, um, to make a living protecting what they love. And, um, I think that that's really cool, but everything that you just sort of said is, is, is actually a pretty good segue for for kind of the one of the next things that I wanted to talk about which is like you had mentioned earlier like I am kind of curious uh about the the effects of um uh, the paper mills on fish just because we have quite a few paper mills in, in the <laughs> yeah in in Georgia and South Carolina but um but just different environmental threats right I mean you could you know, that's so broad that it's like, well, you know, depends on what you want to talk about. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but cause I mean, right. There's everything there's runoff from fertilizer, <clears throat> excuse me. There's climate change, there's <clears throat> habitat destruction. There's things that I have never really thought about, but paper mills and oh, yeah. just all sorts of crazy stuff. So yep. <clears throat> um, can just for my own curiosity, what was the what was the paper mill situation? How, how, how did that research? Yeah, so we were looking at how fish were uh, being affected upstream and downstream of a big paper mill up in New Brunswick, um, and uh, we we're monitoring a couple different species uh, upstream and downstream, and seeing it how it was really affecting their um, uh, their metabolism and their growth rates and uh, impacting uh, essentially their, their reproductive potential. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the things that come out of pulp and paper mills, um, not only is there like nutrient enrichment and all this other stuff that we know is bad, but there's some, there can be some chemicals that are coming out of pulp and paper mills in the effluent uh, that can have pretty significant effects on, on fish physiology and their ability to, to, to maintain their populations, their ability to grow. Um, you know, there's, um, you know, I, I teach about this a lot in a sophomore level conservation class at UMass here that has grown a lot in the last 10 years. Um, that, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of things that, and, and you mentioned it, there's a lot of things that like were put in the environment that five years ago we thought were benign that, are not benign now. Like we, the more that we learn about what we put into the environment, um, and we dig it, you know, we we uh, ignore a lot of the work that needs to be done ahead of time to understand what the impacts are. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and and that that goes to anything, right? Like I, I think where we as human societies get into trouble is where we we uh, don't look carefully enough and patiently enough about the effects of of things that we're putting in the environment or how we're changing the ha habitat or what the effects are and obviously the the big elephant in the room is climate change and yeah. you talked about you know water flow and change like they, a lot of that right a lot of the impacts that we're seeing now um 
you know, are actually being exacerbated by other things that are happening way related to climate change. Like we should, we should no longer use the word global warming, uh, right? It's climate change. And, and yes, we're seeing, um, increasing, uh, temperatures, we're seeing global temperatures increase, but it's not only just temperature that's causing the problem, right? We're seeing changes in precipitation regimes, you know, extremes between droughts and floods and, um, and a lot of that has, um, you know, cascading effects about how resilient, you know, aquatic ecosystems are and fish are and the planet is right. Like the more times that you like are kicked and pushed down, the harder it is to keep getting up. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of like the analogy I use for like what we're doing to our planet. Like we're, you know, these, these subtle little impacts here and there, there might be some ways for the environment to respond or be resilient to and what we're really doing right now is we're, we're pushing the resiliency of our planet to the point where it may not be that resilient anymore. Right. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to, well, I, I think, I think I sort of answered your question there, but I could yeah, yeah. ramble on about resiliency, but I, I think that that idea of, uh, these sort of cascading effects and then bringing it back to this idea of, of, um, and I know you and I were going to chat about this, about like, um, not being apathetic, right? Like right. we, we gotta there as a, as a, as, and, and I think you and I know this individually, like that's, we're continuing to fight the good fight and we need to stay sort of optimistic about how we can create positive change. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that it, sometimes that's hard given, you know, stuff we see in the popular media and the stuff that we're, you know, experiencing like right now, you know, I'm in, I'm in Massachusetts and, you know, it's like spring out. It's like the middle of middle of March. There's no snow. We we've had a really lame winter. Um, and you know, the, some of the, some of the plants are starting to bud out. Um, which is like a month early. Right. And so, uh, I'm seeing that, you know, like I, I, I think that having those observations are important and recognizing that there's change happening in my backyard. And, um, and I think that's what I would kind of encourage other people to do. I'm like, there's things that are happening around you that, um, are important to be aware of and to have that be that personal, um, set of experiences that guides you to like, Oh my God, like climate change is real. Uh, and you know, there are ways, there are things in place that we can do to, to slow it down. Um, and even though climate change is that big elephant in the room and sometimes seems daunting, there are other things that we can do as individuals and as groups and as communities and as industries, um, you know, for other parts of the environment and other aspects where we can help our environment maintain that resiliency as we're fighting that bigger fight against climate change. Um, you know, and I think that's where like, I try to work with my students and I try to work with anybody that'll listen and we're like, don't give up. And they're like, what can I do? I'm like, oh, well, that's why you practice, you, you follow the three principles for keep fish wet. Right. And which eat with each fish you encounter, 
you know, you minimize air exposure, you reduce hand uh, impact, uh, you, you don't reduce impacts on, on rough surfaces and you minimize handling time because yeah. there's some science that shows that that creates a better outcome for each fish. And if all the fish that are back being released are in better condition, then that makes those populations more resilient as we're fighting these other fights related to climate change and habitat, and other stuff. Um, well, too, just, uh, you know, talking about climate change and I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up because the intergovernmental panel on climate change just released their sixth report, which is basically a summary of the first five. And it was nothing new, but it was just, something that's really important to me personally for everyone to understand is that you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem and nothing is more empowering than actually taking action and and doing something um whether it's keeping fish wet or hey i'm going to switch my the bulbs in my house to led because it's going to help me conserve energy or you know whatever the step is like Every and literally the report says this like at this point, every action matters. Like, yeah, so like a hundred pennies make a dollar. So it's like, yeah, I, I can't personally stop big oil, right? But right. I can conserve energy, I can make a personal decision to conserve energy or put solar on my roof or whatever the case may be to help lessen my impact. Well, if, if you know, if millions of people do that, then the impact is huge. Yeah. And, and you can modify how you vote and you can modify There are other things that you can do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I, I really, what you said there resonates really well with me. And, and I would make one change and say that we're all the problem. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. It's, it's, I think we're, we're, you know, this is where I go back to being like, um, you know, being to, to keep fish wet and catch and release. We're, we're the problem. If we hold fish out of the water longer, they're going to suffer, right? We're also the solution. You don't take them out of the water. You know, like, and, and so, you know, I think that it, it, once we acknowledge that, you know, and, and it's really climate change, habitat disturbance, coastal development, the fact that we've got more demands on oil and all this other, it's the way to humanity, right? And, and you know, I, I interviewed in a, for a documentary a, a number of years ago, Sandy Moret, and, and, you know, during that interview, he, uh, you know, he said that it's like, we were talking about the Florida Keys and he's like, well, you know, it's really just the way to humanity. Um, and that, that resonates with me a lot on a, on a regular basis, because, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the fact that we've got so many people that are, you know, um, you know, part of the, the human societies, which are great. I and mean, I'm not against thinking about humans are important parts of the planet. Um, but a lot of the things that we do are creating the impacts that we're seeing. Yeah. Um, and it's when you ask, you know, rather than one, look, we got to look at ourselves in the mirror and recognize that we're part of the problem. And we then ask ourselves, do we want to continue to be part of the problem? Or do we want to start going down the path where we can be part of the solution? And, and like you were saying about LEDs or like, you know, getting rid of the, of the ditching the hero shot and the grip and grin, like cut that crap out. Um, and you know, that's going to create, you know, positive change. Um, and it's simple behavioral stuff. We're not talking about like, 
you know, and there's there's so many state initiative um, incentives for like switching out to LEDs, right? It all it takes is a tiny little bit of extra time and a commitment, and you've got you know places where they'll 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 give you rebates or they'll give you to them for free, you know, and well, and, and so hey, I'm sorry, I, I have to yeah, yeah. I have to do this before, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, it's all good. Go to. There is a website. There's a link actually through the flyfishingclimatealliance.org website, but it's the database. It's DSIRE. The easiest way to do it is just go to flyfishingclimatealliance.org and click on this resource. And you can literally type in your zip code and it will tell you whether you, whether you're an individual or a business, every state and federal tax incentive, rebate, like anything you can think of to conserve energy or move forward with renewables or electric vehicles. It's a really cool resource. And I wanted to mention that before I cool. interrupt you for, for that. Cause it's, it's super helpful. Yeah. And, and that's, and I think that's, that's awesome that that's there. And what it does is it, 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 it reduces the distance between wanting to be part of the solution and being part of the solution. Right. And so, you know, we all have, I think, as going it back to to anglers and, you know, conservation minded anglers and thinking about the future and protecting what they love, you know, there's some good intentions there. Right. Like we don't want to see fishing disappear. You know, we know that stocking fish is expensive and it's polluting genetic resources and it's like. Stocking is not a solution. It's not economically viable. Um, you know, like we think about how we um find those things where we can um make positive change and starting it with like the minimal amount of effort we know everybody's got busy lives and and you know like and people are stressed out and all that stuff but if if we all as individuals anglers or not make a, a tiny little bit of a commitment to make that behavioral change, turn turn the lights off in your room before you leave the room and not leave them on for a long time or put timers on your lights or do whatever. Like it all adds up. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that, that I think, and that also like if once you start, it's, it's, it's habit forming. Right. Uh, and once you, you know, and, and this is where I, I go back, you know, Sasha and I talk about this a lot about how, the the best practices for catch and release and keep fish wet is kind of like a gateway to having other conversations about bigger environmental issues like habitat and climate change right if you can work with anglers and have them understand that like a tiny little bit of, of a behavioral change that doesn't cost them any money is going to man make a huge outcome on that the the health and well-being of that fish when it's released one why wouldn't you want to do it right and two, all of a sudden, it empowers you to think like, wow, okay, that little bit of behavioral change, man, I, I, I'm empowered. I, I made a difference. Well, maybe I can make a difference the next time I plan my route to drop off stuff and not use so much gas or think about the next time I'm, you know, I see an ad about uh, incentives for light bulbs or whatever. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take the five minutes and I'm going to click that and I'm going to sign up for it and I'm going to get those LED bulbs. Um, you know, like I think that there's there's that gateway to having that conversation and to also how to share your views and your voice where it comes to lobbying for policy change. Um, 
you know, I think there's a lot that can be done. And I think that we just need to, to find ways to keep up that momentum. And, you know, and it, it could be sector by sector, like we're talking, you know, a lot related to recreational fishing, right? Um, and, um, you know, the, the um, maybe this is a bit of a tangent or a, a not even a tangent or a digression, but, you know, fish rely on water, right? Like water, like I, I when I, when I picked, started um, teaching this course at UMass about fish conservation, there wasn't like a module about water, it just jumped into fish. I'm like, how can you teach a course about fish and not understand the principles of water? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about water conservation and water pollution and things like that. And, 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 and ecosystems and components in water, but like, I know this is audio and, and people can't see it, but if I take my little cup of water here and I pour water on the floor, you know, I'm not conserving water, but there's nothing in that water. that's like screaming or dying. You can't quite see it. And I think this is where I think fish are really invaluable as like that sort of very um, um, relevant, real, <laughs> it's not abstract, um, these things that rely so heavily on the water quality that using them as a vehicle, almost as a canary in the coal mine, and also as the, the thing that so many of us rally around, right? We love to fish. We love that experience. It saved our lives. We, we fish with our kids. We fish with our grandparents. There's competitions. There's all sorts of reasons why fish are so important. People like to eat fish, you know, if they're legal to harvest, harvest fish, I like to eat fish, you know, but, but thinking about ways that we can amplify the importance of fish, that connection to water and the connection to things that are changing in the environment, temperature, flow regimes, like it just makes it that much more relevant. And, and maybe at least in our circles with recreational anglers, it maybe gives people that extra little nudge and say, you know what, I'm going to, as of today, I'm going to be smart, part of the solution and I'm going to start making a change. Um, and whether it's how I'm interacting with my fish or how I'm I'm writing letters to my local mayor or constituents about things that are happening in my backyard related to water flow or pollution or whatever, like everybody needs to step up, right? It's time to when we have these issues that we're facing, you know, you got to lean into them. Right. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't lean into them, um, then, you know, you're, you're not pushing against the negative stuff that's happening. Right. And I think too, a, a component of it is, you know, it, it's as simple as just starting to ask questions. Right. I mean, otherwise, like, what are you like? I don't know. I, I just feel like as an, as anglers, you're kind of by nature, curious and wanting to learn right because you started and you were like okay well whether it was entomology for for trout and understanding that which by the way i think is an awesome crash course in systems thinking or yeah. if you're if you're soaking bait or you know like you're, you're starting to understand that you're it's part of a system and then yep. it's like all right well i want to i love this i want to protect it then I think I feel like the next step is like, well, what can I do? And then just keep asking questions. And and it's okay to question anything, right? But it, yep. it's like yep. I think that's the the path that you go on to to come to the realization that it's like, oh, well, 
yeah, all right, well, what is my impact on climate? Or what can I do? Or what is my impact on fish? Oh, well, hey, look, here's a resource. Keep fish wet. Here's like, here's these things that I can do um, to, that I can control, that I can personally control. Yep. Um, and because there's so much that's outside of our control, but that's stuff that you can control, yep. um, which I think is really important. And as, as anglers who benefit, I guess is the right word from, from, from fishing and, and the resource, you know, we, we do have, uh, a responsibility to, to protect it and, and give back. Um, yeah. well, and it's, it's conservation, right? The, yeah. people, I think people get, people get lost on like the term conservation. Conservation is like, it's that idea of sustainability. It's like conserving it for future use, yeah. right? Pres preservation is like, we're not going to touch it. We're not going to use it. And we're just going to let it be. And there's some places where we need to preserve, you know, areas that are sensitive and stuff. Um, but like the idea of conservation is that acknowledgement is like, we use things on our planet. We just, we just do. We've got wood in your house. You've got water coming out your pipes. We've got, you know, those other things like we, we, we use natural resources and we need to be wise about how we're using those re natural resources. We need to change some of the models about how we use those natural resources, like thinking about regenerative agriculture, yeah. you know, about how you create systems where that you're not depleting the soils to the extent where they can never be used again or need to be fertilized and all that stuff. And you're actually planting and doing things where it's regenerative, where like it's much more sustainable from year to year in terms of the the productivity of those crops. Yeah. You know, we got to get away from thinking about how we like, you know, other things for advocating for change, like the way that we're messing around with with forage fish, um, you know, and depleting forage fish stocks, you know, for for uh, fish oils, um, you know, where we know that there's advancements and alternatives to fish oils. You know, I, I'm starting to do um, some uh, collaboration with a company that's um, producing something called ahi flour, um, which is a, an oil. It's oil from a from a weed um, that actually has some of and actually um, is comparable to fish oil. Huh. Right. So so we don't have to be like and I, I don't get into the details. And that's like a topic of another podcast. Um, but like looking at alternatives where, you know, you're you're looking at ways that um, you're minimizing the impacts on the environment. You're looking at value added opportunities to take wastes, to use them into products that we'd normally be taking out of the environment for other purposes. Um, you know, I, I think there's some really cool approaches that where I think we need to we need to look at we need to break the mold. We got to get past the the model where. Um, you know, single use plastic water bottles and the way, you know, monoculture, um, you know, in terms of agriculture and, um, there's, there's lots of things we could go, we could keep going on a massive list where like we need to start, um, taking bigger steps and looking at these alternative ways of doing things, um, with the, um, provision that like the environment, uh, is, you know, is, is really at stake. Um, and if the environment's at stake, so is our health and well-being and our and our future. Um, wow. so I, I yeah, I think that's you know, I think that's important to, you know, and I think that's kind of where, you know, in some ways it can get a little daunting where people are like, oh my God, 
I'm so busy and these, some of these some of these things are are so big I'm not going to be able to make change or my my little change in my voice and change in action is not going to have an effect but if you have enough people coming to the table pushing that agenda that alternative agenda and that that agenda for positive change and personal responsibility and looking for smart alternatives uh, that are less impactful to the environment yet and also give back in the same way and help rejuvenate the environment. Yeah. Man, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's where we got to go. Well, and I think, you know, something too, it's, um, you know, progress or positive impact isn't like this straight line, right. You know, or, 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 a, where it's moving in one direction, it's it's taking steps, and sometimes, hey, you know, look, it's not about perfection. I guess is what I'm saying. There, I for the most part carry around a reusable water bottle and coffee, but I'm a human being. Like, yeah, sometimes I forget, and I got to go get a plastic water bottle because I'm in the airport. Like, ah, I left it. I was I was busy packing. Like, it's it's not about being perfect. It's about right taking those steps and being like, Oh yeah. Well, next time I'll remember. And that's okay. Yep. Like, and, and not to beat yourself up about it. Um, even though I really do hate doing that, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, um, but there was, you mentioned this earlier and I have to say, I have, um, I want to make sure that we, we, we get to this because I, I have so many questions. Um, sure. But you mentioned Sandy Moret. And Florida Keys, yep, legend, right? Um, yep. And I'm going to the Keys um, for a couple of, of of tarpon trips, one in May and one in June. Um, cool. And I'm super stoked and kind of, I should say, me and my friends that grew up together in Savannah, um, me and my buddy Brent Watts, he and I for five years went to the Everglades and just did DIY. We trailered his little boat. And after five years, we call it one tarpon. Like, you know, we didn't have guides. <laughs> we were, we were figuring it out, but I mean, that was all, yeah. that was super fun. We were camping and and doing that whole deal, but just, just going and exploring, which was awesome. Um, but last year um, we did get some, some guides and, um, you know, landed and and safely released and kept the tarpon wet. Um, Sweet, uh, some some tarpon, and so now I'm like like oh my gosh, like I'm I'm super stoked. So um, yeah, I, I want to talk about because I they're just on my mind nonstop right now. Um, <laughs> the 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 work that you're you're doing with BTT, and also some of the work that y'all have done in the past, which I don't think like you know I didn't know this until I started getting into it, but you know I mean tarpon we would not have known this without the research that was done and I'll let you expand on it. But I mean, yeah. they, they migrate like way farther North than people thought originally. Like, yes. No, that's, a, that's an awesome segue. And you know, tar I like, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same with you about tarpon. I think they're an amazing species um, yeah. as are most of the flat species. It's something that I just gravitate towards. Um, and uh, so tied back to tarpon and movement, um, you know, back in 2016. So my lab, um, you know, we we get a lot of funding from BTT and we collaborate with Bonefish and Tarpon Trust a lot. Um, and so uh, we received a grant to basically spearhead uh, their tarpon telemetry project. Um, so uh, that was back in 2016. 
And uh, that project basically entailed putting uh, surgically implanting transmitters in tarpon uh, with a battery life of about five years um, and uh, using acoustic receivers, which are in the water. Um, so we, we had a whole bunch in the Florida Keys and then there are a whole bunch of other researchers with receivers up and down the Eastern seaboard and in the Gulf of Mexico. And there's these data sharing agreements that, you know, if you detect my tarpon on your receiver, you know, we'll get access to that data. It's a really, really cool collaborative project. So anyway, over the course of four or five years, we surgically implanted uh, transmitters in about 200 tarpon um, and followed their movement patterns from year to year. And, and what's different about this approach is that you're following the same individuals from year after year for multiple years. Um, there were other tarpon tagging projects using satellite tags, which were which are amazing um, for tracking fish, but they don't stay on for very long. Uh-huh. Um, and then you end up piecing this story together with like, you know, what did Bob and Mary and Joe and Jim, their combined tracks, what can that tell you about the overall population? So you're not looking at what individuals were doing year after year after year, you're sort of compiling individual movement patterns to paint this kind of broader picture. And so we, with this acoustic telemetry project, we're taking it to the next level by being able to follow those individuals over time, um, over multiple years. And the fact that these acoustic transmitters are about the size of like a double A battery, not the size of a plastic water bottle, you know, and you surgically implant them in the fish, you know, you could put them in smaller tarpon. The the satellite tags, you can only put on larger fish. So this acoustic telemetry project um, allowed us to look with a broader lens at what a, a wider size range of tarpon are doing year after year after year. And so, you know, the, the, uh, the long and short of the results and, and, um, and we're still, there's still some tarpon that we're tracking, um, multiple years after. So we tagged some of them in like in 2020. So we're still collecting data on those fish. Okay. Um, and you know, they're, you know, like you were going down to go fish for tarpon in May, right. That's the season where they all sort of, and we know this, that's the, that's the tarpon season in the Florida Keys. They're all down there to basically it's putatively to spawn, right. They form these spawning aggregations and then they go offshore to spawn. Um, and, you know, once the season starts to wane, you get into June or July, you know, a lot of those tarpon will start to migrate away from the Keys. But what our data is showing is that you've got some of those tarpon that mix in the Keys, that some of them always go up the Gulf Coast, and you've got some that always go up the Atlantic Coast. Um, and there's a few that maybe mix, but you've got these consistent patterns of sort of maybe these subgroups of tarpon that have different migratory behaviors um, that, you know, when we look at them, they all look the same. It's like, basically, that's the tarpon population or the tarpon stock, but their behaviors, uh, their migratory behaviors are different. Layered into that is that because we're able to monitor the movement patterns of individual tarpon year after year, the same tarpon are going are following the same migratory patterns year after year. So the ones that always go up the East Coast always go up the East Coast year after year. They're not like they decide one year that, you know what, I'm going to Alabama. You know, like they don't they don't do that. Um, and 
they also the timing at which they arrive back in the keys is like plus or minus like a week or two right really? so the timing of arrival yeah so and in, so and that that's spread out over the season but it means like you're going down fishing in may right into the florida keys so there's a high probability that if you went last may and you're going this may you're fishing for the same group of fish right that still still might be hundreds and hundreds of fish but it means that that timing of their migration as they're entering that population, that the, the ads are entering that environment in the Florida Keys, the timing of arrival and the timing of departure is like pretty consistent year after year after year. Wow. Um, through this also project, we've also demonstrated that they're going a lot further north than we ever thought, right? So we're, we've gotten detections in the Chesapeake, right? Not a ton of fish, but the, and that's, and that's, um, you know, starting to uh, reflect back on a lot of the observations that we're getting from guides and people that are seeing more tarpon moving further north. But we're just, you know, we're backing up those observations with this science, right? And saying, because, you know, often if you're, if you want to go to a legislature and, uh, or a legislator, and you want to fight for change in terms of management, if you say, well, you know, we're observing that this are like, where's the numbers? Where's the data? Right. Well, this this is the this is the, the science that's bringing the data to the table to go look. Here's a proportion of fish that they all sort of congregate in the Florida Keys, but guess what? They're going further up for passing multiple state boundaries and they're spending time in your state waters. So from uh if we as we bring that science and BTT's tagline, bring the science to the fight, right? It, as we bring that science that that those numbers to the fight, it just adds weight to the argument that for the management of tarpon, it has to be regional, right? It's yeah. we can't do it state by state, right? There's still some states where it's legal to harvest tarpon, and there's some still some states where you know there isn't uh, any regulations about taking big fish out of the water, right? In Florida, you, if it's over 40 inches or 44 inches, I can't remember, you can't take the fish out of the water because that has you know problem implications for internal organs and all sorts of stuff in addition to not keeping the gills in the water um but you know they're having this movement data this data about migratory patterns and about individual repeatability year after year and it you know and how it's putting certain portions of the population in areas where there might be other threats, threats that are happening, not just harvest, but also what if, if, you know, these tarpon were believe and other people believe that they're moving North to follow the mullet runs, right. And go to Menhaden to, you know, after these spawn, they move North to basically fatten up their fuel resources to then migrate back South to go spawn again the following year. So if they're following all these mullet runs um, and these bunker populations to go feed and those bait fish populations are dependent upon freshwater input in these estuaries, right? And we're impacting freshwater flows in these estuaries, then there might be some sort of threat um, as those pop, as the tarpon are spending more time or migrating north, it may be exposing them to other impacts um, that affect their populations. And so having this information about movement patterns has actually led to the current study um, that's using stable isotopes, 
Uh, so be, we're taking little fin clips and essentially, long story short, you are what you eat. And there's some things that we can tell from the stable isotopes uh, in the fish's body about where it is on the food chain and how much time it's spending in fresh water versus salt water. Um, that's the next step to these movement patterns and these migration patterns is making the connections to the prey base so that we can bring even more evidence to the table when we want to work with legislators and managers about this broader regional plan for for protecting, you know, or conserving tarpon, right? Um, so long story short, we still have tarpon stuff going on. We've got, we're still tracking tarpon um, that were tagged as part of the earlier study. And then now we're doing the uh, stable isotope work um, as a, as a extension of that, yeah. uh, based on the clues that we, um, we, or based on the data that we drive from the acoustic telemetry stuff. That is, inc- I, I, um, that's so fascinating to me. That, that, that is so cool. And I think too, kind of said this earlier, but it, it it's, it's applies here too. Um, you know, and, and thinking, s- of about systems thinking right of like this is part of uh a system we're we're all working within that same system and in in some capacity and um or in every capacity really but particularly you know with these tarpon if they're chasing these these smaller fish or bait fish and there's impacts on that then that bait fish is just as important as the tarpon even though you know, you could put economic numbers behind what tarpon fishing brings to the state of Florida for those two months and yep. you know, all that. But the point is, is that they're no less valuable. And I guess you could argue perhaps even more valuable to sustain yep. the population over the long term. Um, yeah. But I guess a, 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 a follow-up question, and it may be tarpon related, it may be not, but I, I have to ask because – You've been researching, you've been, I mean, for 20 plus years, right? Um, what are maybe some of the most profound findings from your research that and it could be about anything, but just curious, yeah. what what has surprised you, I guess, um, and and your research? Yeah, over the over the last, you know, 20 some odd years, I think this there's there's a ton. There's it's all to me, um, you know, I'm driven just by the stuff that I learn, and fish are just so freaking cool. Um, I think um, one of the biggest things was our. Um, so I, I spearheaded the first study that documented uh, where bonefish go to spawn, um, and that was in the Bahamas and Eleuthera. There's a whole bunch of wonderful collaborators involved in that, including BTT, and and that knowledge has been the springboard for a lot of other work that's been done to help set up protected areas in the Bahamas, to help understand their biology and ecology. Um, you know, that was a big, uh, that was a big discovery. That was one of those cool discovery moments. Um, you know, I think that um, all the things that I'm doing related to um, some of the movement patterns, like the way that we've seen tarpon going much further north um, is, uh, I think that opens up the idea about broader regional management that was again we kind of got had that sense but the science reinforced that um is, is, is can i can i interrupt you because i'm 
just because I'm curious, the, sure. the the them moving further north, is there evidence that that has something to do with climate change and warming temperatures, or is there not enough to conclude that yet? Yeah, a- anecdotally, probably. You know, yeah. we're seeing more accounts, but if you go back historically, uh, there are accounts of tarpon showing up occasionally, like in Martha's Vineyard, right? Yeah. Or, um, but I, I think over time, we're now that we're more aware and we're able to look at these things that we can see if that has, has created that change. Yeah. Um, you know, other stuff that, that I find, um, interesting. And, and I think that, um, sort of, sort of that earth shattering or, um, the bigger revelations, um, it's not, it, it's, it's one part of a project that I was doing, um, in the Seychelles about milkfish. Um, but it's, it's a reminder that we have to be careful about what we advocate on on social media as anglers and and our anecdotes so you know there's this whole thing that uh milkfish fight for so long because they don't build up blood lactate they don't build up the lactic acid and they don't do that because they're vegetarians like literally twice a year on social media i see that coming up over and over again and i'm like one that's that's physiologically biologically impossible and you know, and, and although like milkfish aren't targeted very much by recreational anglers, if you look at how they're being promoted, more and more people want to go to catch milkfish, right? Yeah. And so we actually last this time last year, or we uh we went and did some science through the Alphonse Fishing Company, or they're great collaborators. Um, and we debunked that. We like, no, we actually used some science and we said, look, that they, they they build up blood lactate and you know, that we're looking at their, their duration at which they produce blood lactate. Anyway, long story short to me, that, that, that was, to me, it was like, I wasn't surprised, but it, it's another example of like how, you know, and I know this cause I'm a recreational angler. I've got all these anecdotes of like why fish would behave in a certain way. And why does this fish fight longer than this fish? Um, but it, it's another example of like, let's, let's use science and let's to basically, um, provide some validity to those um, hypotheses. Right. Um, and so that when it comes to caring for each individual fish, whether it's milkfish or bonefish or brown trout or tarpon, that we can be more confident in the way that we're interacting with them as anglers. Yeah. And we can be more confident about what we're advocating for. So this is kind of bring it full circle and that you know, I totally believe in being a strong advocate and being an activist, right? Like, but what I believe in more is being an informed advocate and informed activist. So you were talking about using that knowledge and learning, learning about why a fish does this versus this, or why our habitat's degrading in this way versus that way. And then bringing that knowledge to the table when you're having a discussion with your fishing buddies, or when you're having an argument with a politician, or when you're writing a, leg- a letter to your legislator, um, that you're, you've got some evidence, you've got, you're informed, you're much more informed, and you're bringing evidence to the table that strengthens your argument. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's where, like, I, you know, I, I think that that's where we, we all need to go. Um, you know, rather than saying, well, I, I believe I agree. We all believe in lots of different things. Yeah. Uh, I believe in this because here is some evidence that's showing 
and some and some ob, you know some scientific evidence that's been objectively derived that's showing that milkfish produce blood lactate so we can't and we shouldn't fight them for an hour and a half yeah, right, <laughs> right right so right. um and so that's where like and and i think that applies across the board again whether you're an angler or not um you know thinking about the ways that we lean into problems um thinking that we're one part of the solution and leaning into it in a way where um as you're if you want to be the solution you you base your actions on uh, objective evidence in terms of knowing that you're so you feel confident uh, that you know going back to keep fish wet i feel confident if i don't take a fish out of the water it's probably not physiologically impacted as much so i'm not going to take the fish out of the water um or if i am it's going to be for two seconds or one second because the science shows that 10 seconds or less is okay um and so you know that this and and that guides my personal behavior but it also guides how i advocate for change within the recreational angling community right so i bring i bring that scientific evidence to the table um and can point to that evidence and say you know and, and at the end of the day you know when it comes to recreational fisheries like so what's the harm like when it comes to like catch and release and and yeah. best handling practices so you know there's not there's never going to be a study that shows that taking the fish out of the water is good right so you know and then if we if we love these fish so much then why shouldn't we all try to adopt these best practices for catch and release with each fish and yes we all make mistakes you're right every once in a while you don't you fish falls out of your hands or you forget or stuff we're all human but it's that then we after you do that you look introspectively and go i'm going to do it better next time yep. um i'm going to try not to forget my my uh reusable water bottle but today i'm i'm dehydrated so i i unfortunately need to get that single use bottle you know because that's where i am and i don't want to get sick so i i think there's like there's that broader ethos of sort of personal responsibility and thinking about how that reflects back on the evidence that we bring to the table as we decide to make positive change and then how we advocate for positive change to our neighbors to our kids to the people that you interact with, to fellow anglers, to whoever wants to listen, right? So, is that and is that would you say, or, or I guess I'll just ask. I mean, what is it that? I and mean, we talked about this a little bit before the the interview, but it's like, you know, with your research and things that are, you know, climate change and pollution and all sorts of stuff that it's like can be a little. Uh, can kind of get you down, I guess. Um, yep. So what, what is it that gives you hope about the, the, the future? What gives me hope is that, um, that there's lots of examples of making those little changes yeah. that create positive change that are, that, that's a positive difference to make. Right. And if you do the math, if you look at examples of how, um, you know, uh, subtle changes in behavior have, have catalyzed and created positive change. Um, that, and also, you know, if, if we don't lead with hope and optimism, the opposite is pessimism and apathy. And if we do that, we're screwed. 
right? right? Like, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I also, maybe this is broader, deeper in terms of, you know, than we need to go. But like, you know, maybe humans are on this planet, you know, in geological time, just for a small bit of it. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I tell this to my students. So like, if, if we weren't here, the trees, the forest, the fish would all be fine. Yeah, They'd be, you know, like, and so, you know, this is where like a lot of, and maybe this is a bit of a digression, but a lot of the, the work that I do now with recreational fisheries is not only looking, doing science, but I also do social science. I collaborate with social scientists to understand how do we change social norms? How do we create behavioral change in such a way that, um, you know, that ultimately, because we don't manage fish and we don't manage trees, right? We manage people. That's what we do, right? Um, it goes back to tragedy, the commons. It goes back to like, you know, cheating and stealing and competing for resources. And so, um, you know, that if we go into that mindset that we're managing people, we need to understand what make people, what, what makes people tick yeah. and what drives their motivations. And we need to work with them to help, you know, positively affect change, change social norms. Um, and, you know, and there's enough where, um, that, uh, there's a, there's enough there that I think we can lead with hope and optimism. Um, and, you know, and I think that there is a bright future if we, and we got to start now. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No time like the present. Um, so, um, all right, well, let me, before, before we wrap up, we've been talking about fish. We've been talking about conservation, science, and this is all, and by the way, we might have to do a part two because this is like, this has done nothing but get like more, I got more, I have more questions, but, um, but that being said, um, we haven't necessarily talked a ton about fishing. So uh, I'm going to (laughs) ask favorite, and this is, this is loaded. So maybe I should break it, break it down. That's all right. Saltwater species and favorite freshwater species to catch <laughs> on, on any kind of gear. It doesn't matter if it's yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, I, I want to start with saying that for me, every fish is my favorite. Yeah. Um, yeah that's fair. And it's true. I, I honestly, to have that conversation. So, you know, I, I love bonefish. Bonefish to me, they're, they're fabulous in terms of the way they fight. And, you know, the first bone, the first fish that I ever caught in a fly rod uh, is a bonefish. I taught myself how to fly fish and I caught it on a fly that I tied myself. So it's hard to go back from that. Um, But, you know, bonefish are great, but, you know, from tarpon are cool, permit are cool, (laughs) golden masseur are cool, trout are cool, bass are cool. Like, I I don't see it like this. To me, the fish are part of the puzzle when you you combine it into the environment and you combine it into the experience. Honestly, I mean, I've got, you know, your listeners can't see it, but I have a big golden Dorado behind my head in my office. I love golden Dorado for, for what they are and how they fight and how cool they are. But would I rank them higher than GTs or would I rank them higher than golden Messier or would I rank them higher than the little sunfish that I catch on my tank car rod in my local pond? Probably not because um, I, I just think, I don't know. I, I just enjoy my interactions with, 
which with each and every fish, like it, yeah. because I, I just, I don't know, maybe that's not the best answer or what maybe your <laughs> listeners were hoping for, but like, I, I, I don't, um, I mean, think about it a lot. I don't have favorites. Yeah. Um, and I think that by, by doing that, I think, um, I don't know, maybe I just, I, I look more broadly about how important fish are, even those fish we don't catch on hook and line, those yeah. little menhaden or the little darters that are in the stream near me that support that ecosystem. Yeah. You know, like every fish is cool in my mind. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, where can anyone listening who wants, is looking for some resources maybe um, to be, a, um, I guess a, well, What's the name of the podcast? A more sustainable angler or responsible angler. <laughs> <laughs> All over the place. There's a ton. Uh, you know, you can like we talked a lot about key fish wet. Uh, they're an important resource for best practice for catch and release. Um, BTT's got some great stuff on their website. Uh, uh, American Fly Fishing Trade Association's got a campaign called Tomorrow's Fish. There's come comes a re- lot of resources there. Yeah. Um, you can also, uh, I've got a, a lab website, it's fishforward.org um, that has a lot of stuff on it and my contact information so people can reach out to me. Um, and I also encourage people, like if you've got questions about your favorite species or something that's going on about the environment around you, you know, I've done a lot, both in freshwater, coastal, marine systems, lots of different species, like I, I don't have, it might take me a day or two or a week to respond to your email, but like, shoot me a question. Um, I, I, I think that type of engagement is really important. Um, and that's actually a lot of the questions that I've received from anglers and guides and lodges has actually been the catalyst for some of my research. Um, because that, that there's no better way to uh, have people like buy into the results of a study if the questions come from them and it's, you know, it's relevant to the future of their fishery, then, then let's, let's have that conversation. So see, now you got me going again. See, I got, we're doing a part two. This is, I, I, I've got, cause now I'm like, all right, well, hang on. I want to, I want to talk about redfish now. Cause they're in my, they're in my background. Uh, um, but, um, but anyway, we'll, we, we will do a part two. Um, and I, if you're open to it and absolutely. I, um i appreciate everything that that you do and have done your research um has fascinated me for a long time the the bonefish spawning in the bahamas was really cool you know finding out that these tarpon are 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 headed north but i guess confirming it with data um, yeah absolutely hey this is what they're doing and this is their behavior and that that information helps us to better protect them because we know what's happening. And, um, so anyway, yeah. on a personal note, thank you for everything that you do with your research to protect what you love. And, uh, thanks for your time and for joining me on the podcast. This was super informative and that's why I like doing this. I just like to, to learn as much as I can. <laughs> so I, I appreciate it. My pleasure, Rick. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Sustainable Angler. Um, Special thanks to Andy for his time and insights. Uh, If you like what you're hearing, it really helps out the podcast if you could give it a rating and review on iTunes. Um, Helps us to grow and and educate more anglers and hopefully inspire more anglers to protect the planet. Um, 
We have some merchandise and we're going to be launching some, actually some new merchandise I'm pretty excited about. Um, so stay tuned and all that can be found on our website, www.thesustainableangler.com.